podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners. And in this episode of the show, I have an extra special guest for you. I am lucky enough to be joined by one of the great characters in Australian cricket. He played seven tests for Australia, 123 one-day internationals, 15 T20 internationals. He won the coveted Cricket World Cup twice in 2003 and 2007 Welcome to the show, George Bradley Hogg. Welcome to the show, show Hoggy. Thanks for coming on. How are you? Well, I'm going very well, mate. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, can't wait to get over to Melbourne and start the big bash in about twenty odd days. Yep. How's your training coming along for the BBL? Uh, training's been going really well. Uh, I can't complain. I'm pr- probably feeling a bit fitter than what, what I did uh, five years ago. So, yeah, very happy where I'm at at the moment. Just hopefully the bowling uh, bowling stands up this year. Now, Hoggy, <laughs> I just got back from Adelaide. I, I was lucky enough to see the, the day-night test, and I had your new book, The Wrong, and as my companion for all the breaks. It was an excellent read. Uh, I have to say, I mean, your career just spans so long. It was such a good read. You know, hearing some, you know, from characters in the 90s all the way to now, just a fascinating book. You must be happy with the way it turned out. Uh, yeah, it was a long process. I didn't think it would take that long, but uh, it took over a year and a half. And uh, yeah, no, it was just a good, good feel just to to be able to be, be in a position where you could write a book. So it's a great privilege, one, to be able to be able to do that, uh, be able to be able to. Uh, don't know where that word came from, but um, yeah, it was just a great privilege to be able to uh, be put in a position where someone wanted me to write a book and. I've got to say, it was Greg Rowden who wrote the book. I just did the verbal stuff. So uh, let's not get too carried away about me writing the book. It was more about uh, therapeutic stuff, uh, just going back and revisiting your, your cricket career and um, just going, wow, uh, did all this happen? And uh, that, that was the journey that it took me to get where I am now. So it, is just a, it was just a great uh, thing to do over the year and a half to... Uh, just be able to go back through your career and and um, see see uh, the road that I took. Now, um, I want to ask you about some of the different captains you had throughout your cricketing <laughs> career because, I mean, when you made your debut, Mark Taylor was your, your test captain and then you had you yeah. played under Steve Waugh. How did you find both of those blokes as captains? Oh, look, each, uh, each player that I've played with, uh, you know, they've all got their little different knickknacks and uh, different personalities and... Uh, ways about going uh, going about their business. So Mark Taylor, he was more relaxed and probably Steve Wall. Steve Wall was one of those ones that led from the front, um, had that toughness about him. And if if uh, he the way that he was playing, he expected everyone else to play. If he couldn't do it, he wouldn't expect you to do it. Whereas Mark Taylor was pretty relaxed, uh, especially in my first couple of uh, games. I had no idea what I was doing out, uh, doing out international cricket at that stage back in 1996. I'd only just started bowling left-arm leg spinners for two years, never done it before, uh, let alone uh, trying to bowl it, trying to work out how to get batsmen out and, and uh, know what I was doing. Um, it was a difficult art to take up in those first two years, and the way he led me uh, in that tour of 1996 to India uh, was was unbelievable, especially with the, um, uh, the lack of knowledge that I had. So the way he handled me was exceptional and made me feel very welcome. 
Yeah, you talk about that first test in 1996 in India. <laughs> I remember that really well because it was actually one of the first tests from India televised on Australian TV. So we all got to watch it. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm sure Hoggy was bowling medium pace last time I saw him. And then all, all of a sudden you were you're bowling left arm leg spin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how how long was it before you started? How long was it when to you when you started to when you made your test debut bowling spinners? Oh, look, uh, 1994, I bowled them in the nets. That was February uh, 1994, 95, 94, 95. I started, yeah, so two, yeah, it was basically two years. 94, 95, I started bowling a bit of part time out in the middle. So I was bowling a lot for club cricket, but at shield level, uh, I was. I was sort of class as a batting all-rounder. Um, yeah, so it was only two years before I represented my country that I was bowling uh, the left-arm Chinamans, and I'm glad I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't have... Uh, I definitely wouldn't have played as a bat. That's amazing that it's two years you're already... You're playing the test side. Now, I want to go back to Steve Waugh. He sounds like he sounds like the ice man from what everyone says, but it seems like he he likes to play, play like to pull a few tricks in the in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I heard he yeah, stitched to... you up. Yeah, he stitched me up a couple of times actually, but he, he's got a, he's got uh, a really wicked sense of humour. It's a dry humour, and you'd, it's unexpected, especially when, uh, the way that you see him out on the field. And uh, you know, you, you hardly ever see a smile come to his face while he's actually playing the game of cricket. So you're thinking, right, he's he's probably not that uh, that, that much of a humorous character. But when you get him behind closed doors and in the change rooms when the game's done and dusted, he uh, he can be quite funny. So yeah, there, there were a couple of pranks that he played on me very uh, very early in my career, and I was a very gullible character, as uh, probably you would worked out with the book and you know if someone if someone said jump it was just a matter of how high uh, they wanted me to jump so um, I was susceptible for a lot of, uh, to uh, well uh, susceptible to a lot of blokes out there uh, playing pranks on me yeah that's just a uh, naive boy from the bush yeah and um, what about the other captains so you had Ricky Ponting as your one day captain in the 03 and 07 World Cup did you ever have Michael Clark as a captain uh, look, I don't think I played under Michael Clark. I played under him as a vice captain, but uh, yeah, never, never had the luck to play under him as a captain. And um, yeah, look, each to their own. And you've been given the job, you've been handed the job um, from from the hierarchy for a reason. And uh, I, I think Cricket Australia saw that in, in all captains, they they saw the best out of those players and saw the leadership qualities out of those players. So if you get named as a captain for Australia, you've got to respect it. You've got to, uh, uh, you've got to accept it. And the rest of the team have got to accept it. And uh, it's a great honour. And I think all captains that have, have done the role have accepted it and respected it. Yeah, now, I want to ask you about a captain of your state side that reading through the book, I'm gathering, wasn't your favourite skipper. I'm talking about a big Tom Moody yeah. It just seemed that you had a sort of fracturous relationship with him. Did you ever patch that up? Yeah, no, it's, it's patched up. But you've got to remember that when uh, going through the books, it's my perception of it at that particular time. And uh, as, as a young player coming through the ranks, you sort of lose focus. And all you, all you start thinking about is your journey. Um, how you? So I'd, I'd just come back, played, uh, come back from a tour from India in that particular scenario that you're talking about. And all I could think about was playing for Australia, uh, and I, and I lost that focus and um, lost the values of being a team man there for a while. And 
yeah, and I, I didn't really see that I was going down that path. All I could see was uh, where my career was. I, I'd forgotten, forgotten about my teammates, and uh, yeah, I was a very difficult customer to captain at that stage. So, if, if you read it, it does look like um, there's a there's a there's a sort of a touchy relationship between the both of us. But uh, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you realise that uh, you know I could have done things differently, and you know that's that's the idea of the whole book is uh, to to really expose my vulnerabilities and um, there's, obviously there's a lot of humour in there but it's also to um, sort of expose my vulnerabilities and just uh, you know uh, that journey that I took I had to change things within my uh, personal space to, to make sure that I was adaptable and um, and fitted into all the teams that I was uh, getting selected for. Well you talk about you know opening up to your vulnerabilities I felt the the most powerful part of the book was when it was sort of your your first retirement from the test, well, when you retired from test cricket, I felt the book really conveyed your sense of confusion and anxiety about the whole change in your life. How was that for you opening up to Greg about that and talking about was obviously a really difficult part of your life? Uh, I, look, I, to be honest with you, I found it very easy to open up. Um, I go out and talk to kids uh, about resilience and uh, just striving uh, striving to have their journey of life and um, just explaining to them that you're going to have your ups and downs and when it comes to question times they really ask me some uh, really touching questions where uh, I've really got to open up and be honest and um, you know it goes to my dark times the things that I uh, I'm not too proud of that I've done in my life, and um, you know, if, if you're going to go and do that role and and, uh, and and speak to kids and try and be a bit of a role model, uh, you, you've got to open up and say, right, well, I did this, I did that, and I'm not proud of it, but this is how I got around it to get my uh, life back on track. So, um, you know, for me, it was pretty easy to to open up. Um, I I don't. I don't find uh, anything behind closed doors. Obviously, there's a few family issues there, which um, I, I, I opened up to a certain extent to protect the kids. Um, but other than that, uh, any, anything that goes with me is fully in the book. So, um, yeah, I found it very easy. Yeah, now, on an earlier podcast, I had a guest on Gus Warland, and he was talking about the way cricketers... Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to come forward and talk about your feelings. And I guess, you know, when you were going through this dark time, you probably felt it was hard to, to come out and talk to anyone. Do you think that's changing in the Australian landscape? Do you think cricket dressing rooms are, are getting more open and people can talk about their feelings more? Yeah, I don't, look, I, don't, I don't, for me personally, I whether it be in a shearing shed on the farm or uh, in a cricket team, I, don't, I think I've... Uh, I, the way that I was brought up and um, uh, I, I really had a great upbringing I, I just felt the way that I am I, I don't think I would have opened up to anyone uh, it was just one of those things I'm a man, I'm tough, I, I can get through anything and uh, th- this is my problem, this is my issue and I'm going to deal with it uh, behind closed doors but at the end of the day you, you do need help uh, if, you, if you've got close friends uh, it's always good just to speak to them. Uh, for me, it, it was great to write it down, actually. Um, I, I find it better to write it down, but it's also good to talk to close friends. Uh, my best mate, uh, who I saw the other day, who's just finished reading the book, said, I had no idea that you were going through this. And uh, he was a little bit disappointed that I hadn't spoken to him about it. And, um, yeah, that was six years ago. So uh, he had no idea that I went through that till he read the book. Same with my brother, same with my mum and dad. So... 
um, that, that's how closed off I was. Well, it's good that it's, um, I think it hopefully will encourage, you know, other cricketers who read the book if they grab a mate, if they've got something to talk about. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're a cricketer or a, uh, a, a labourer, uh, or, or even women for that instance, or even kids. If you've got an issue, find someone that you can trust, someone that you can, uh, just, uh, lay your head on their shoulder and, uh, just, you know, uh, let it all out. You feel a lot, a hell of a lot better and the weight's off your shoulders and, uh, you, you can move forward. You've already started that journey of, of fixing the situation or, or moving into a more positive space. So, yeah, it's, it's just not about cricketers. It's about, uh, anyone out life that's going through a tough time. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, there's some really good stories in the book. Uh, winning the World Cup twice must have been a personal, I mean, personal highlight for you. But also, I think you, you describe it like when you win a game for Australia, like a kid getting chocolate. Yep. Um, which seems like a pretty accurate description, that sort of all-encompassing joy you get as a kid. Yeah. Is, is that how it felt, those moments when you won the World Cup? Well, look, uh, playing cricket for Australia just felt like a kid on chocolate. If I really want to describe it to, to the biggest extent, mum, my mum makes great sponge cakes. Uh, she puts cream in it with the banana in it. And um, if she puts chocolate icing on it, uh, that's what it's like winning for Australia. Um, the, the sponge cake with the cream and banana is just playing for Australia. But if you win, uh, the, the chocolate icing uh, is, the, is the stuff on top. It's uh, it's just a great feeling. It's a great honour to be able to represent your country. And really, when when you, when you get to that stage, you you are role models. You're representing the uh, you're representing your country, and you've got to do it, you've got to do it right. All sportsmen, as they're coming through, they dream of playing for their country. They dream of playing for the uh, the, the top team in the country and you don't realise the impact that you do have uh, with, with, with society or with kids uh, that are watching you so it's very important that you take it with uh, a huge responsibility that um, you, you're doing it the right way and setting the example for the next generation coming through and I, I, I guess that's probably we lost our way with Australian cricket over the last couple of or five or six years and I, I think just with the last test match the Adelaide test match it just looked as though that pride of the baggy green has come back to the uh, to, to the uh, well come back of age of, of what it was like many moons ago so I'm not having to go at those players that have gone through that period um, it was just an environment that was um, that they were put in they all wanted to represent their country but it probably um, they, they probably would have liked to have done it a little bit differently. And what about the the structures in cricket? I mean, you've been around for so long. Do you think that you know that they've messed with the pathways at Shield level? You know, you talk to grade cricketers; they seem to be alienating some of the older players. Do you think they've got to get fix it up and go back to the way it used to be? Oh, there's definitely got to be some changes. I just played a great game the other day where we had one bowler in our team that could only bowl 10 overs in the day. So we've got 90 overs to bowl in that day. The other team had three bowlers that were only uh, able to bowl 10 overs. Spell, uh, 10 overs. So, that's, so they had three bowlers, that's 30 overs. They had to find another 60 overs. One, it's not good for the game. It's not good for batters coming through. They're not facing the best bowlers. And these bowlers aren't get, um, uh, spending time out in the middle doing doing what they're uh, striving to do, and that's that's been first class bowlers and even international bowlers. So I think we've got we've got to change our ways uh, a little bit. I think we've got to start at a young age, start teaching kids uh, the basics of the game of cricket, even to the age of uh, eight years of age, and hopefully by the time those kids are at eight, eight, nine, ten. 
that you've been teaching them when they get to the uh, age of 15, 16, 17, when they've got a bit of a bit more testosterone in their bodies and uh, they don't want to listen to mum and dad or uh, anyone like that and, and they think they can go do it, do it on their own, at least they've got that basics. At least they've got a game plan out there and, and they can go out and, and take the game on. And uh, by the time they get to first-class cricket, um, they, they should be ready for it. They should be able to know how to make a 100. They should be able to know how to construct a spell and, and bowl tightly. And um, I, I think we've lost our way in that regard. I think we're too heavy coaching at the top end where it, where it shouldn't be needed, uh, but we should be putting more coaching resources back out the bottom end around the ages of 8, 9 and 10. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I mean, that's one of the things everyone's saying that the the high the high performance unit's not really pulling its weight. I'd, 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 yeah, but on that on that, I wouldn't say it's a high performance not pulling their weight. Each player owns their game. Each player wants to play first class cricket. Each player wants to make a living out of it. Now they own their game. As they come through, they uh, each player's got a mentor, their own personal mentor. It's up to them to uh, utilise re- those resources to the best of their, their ability. You can have all the technique, you can have all the coaching staff out there, but if you're not mentally tough, you're not going to make it. So um, at the end of the day, it's the player's ownership of their game um, rather than uh, rather than all the coaching staff out there. So I, I, that's why I say that we've got too many coaches. So they've, they've got to strengthen the, gra- the grade scene again and, and get the second second eleven shield games back up to being competitive rather than sort of practice matches. I mean, exactly if- right, and that's where that's where that's where they need more. Uh, that's where they need a lot more coaching resources and uh, just to help out those uh, grade teams, even in the, more so in the junior ranks than the, the than the senior ranks. Now, before I let you go, I've got to, you've got to help me with a couple of things. Now, firstly, you've played in nine T20 teams across seven countries. You played in a lot of the the big T20 franchise leagues all all around the world. Now, I want you to help me with this question. Hang on, did you say big... 19 T20 teams? No, nine T20 teams. <laughs> yeah, nine. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought That's it what was it said 19. in your book. If, I, if it was 19, I'm not, I'm not a wanted character, am I? There'd <laughs> <laughs> be a few more. Yeah. Uh, now, when, when you played in the IPL and the Big Bash, I thought last season the Big Bash, the standard of play improved a lot and it seemed to almost be at the same level of the IPL as the, the on-field standard. What's your thought on that? Do you think the BBL and the IPL are roughly the same level or is the IPL still ahead? Uh, oh, look, each is a different competition. You've got one where uh, the IPL, you play each other twice and it goes for two months, whereas the Big Bash only goes for a month or slightly less and you're only playing seven games. So, yeah, it's, it's very hard to describe. We're very lucky with the Big Bash that it's over Christmas pres- uh, period. That's our holiday period. And it gets the public involved. So that makes it an even bigger, bigger spectacle. Um, I think the marketing side and the entertainment that's off the, off field as well uh, does wonders for the game and the way that uh, the way that it's telecast on the TV and radio it, it's just an exciting package. It's an entertaining package and that's what cricket's all about. Yeah, it's great to go out there and win, but if you're not entertaining, if you're not providing uh, good entertainment for those viewers, you're not going to have a decent product. And I think the big bash. Uh, is uh, the cricket out in the middle has been fantastic, but also the entertainment off field has been brilliant. The IPL, I, I think the cricket is absolutely magnificent over there. You've got different conditions, you've got uh, different wickets where uh, all the skills have to be on show throughout the tournament. You, you, you've got to be able to play spin, you've got to be able to play pace, 
and uh, you, you also have those flat wickets where batsmen can really dominate. So the skills over there are tested a little bit more for the for the players, but at the end of the day, both competitions are head to head, side by side. So yeah, it's it's at the end of the day, it's entertainment, and uh, I, I think the IPL, uh, especially in the first six years, um, did exceptionally well with their entertainment. Uh, off field, they, I think um, they're still doing it reasonably well now, but uh, I think it's not as good as what it was in the first six years. Uh, but the, the big bash, um, they got to make sure that they don't get too greedy with the product that they've got now. It's perfect as it is, and uh, the public are absolutely loving it. So um, yeah, so uh, you know, just little tweaks here and there to, to improve it, but don't try and uh, drastically change it. Yeah, I'm really excited about the Big Bash. I'm actually doing a podcast all about the Big Bash. It's called the Big Smash Cricket Podcast, and we're going to be reviewing the whole tournament. And one interesting thing, Hoggy, is you're a, a passionate West Australian. It comes through in your book. How is it going to be when you line up against the Scorchers for the first time? What, what's that going to be like playing against your, your home state? Oh, obviously, uh, you're going to have mixed emotions going through it, but at the end of the day, once you cross that white line, it doesn't matter who I'm playing for, uh, you know, I'm playing to win. So um, it's, it's still going to be very competitive. And, um, you know, decisions are made to uh, throughout your career, throughout your journey, and uh, sometimes you've got to make the tough decision to uh, make sure that you're still playing at the highest level. And uh, that, that's the decision that I've made, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the journey over in Melbourne. And look, at the end of the day, I've, I've been with WA for 23 years. I've played against Victoria uh, every year of that 23 years. And um, uh, because of that uh, Aussie rules uh, rivalry, you could say, uh, there's always been a tough rivalry between Victoria and WA. It's probably the worst rivalry um, in, in the country uh, in, in cricket uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a sense that uh, you really go hard at each other. And uh, to be sitting on the other side of the fence is, is just going to be a wonderful experience to see see how the other side do it and uh, how, how they cope with it. And uh, look, with stuff that I want to go move on to for, moving forward, uh, I've, I've got a wider range of experience now being able to be with a WA team than all of a sudden a, a team that's uh, probably in, in, in the heart of sport in, in Australia. So um, just to, just to feel with how uh, the Victorians re- react to WA, but also how they react to uh, their, their fans out home, being, being probably the, uh, the biggest fans in, in the country. Oh, it's going to be really exciting. You're coming up to Sydney, no doubt, and playing the Strikers and uh, the Sixers and the Thunder, so it should be uh, a really good tournament. I've got to get used to uh used to that coming up to Sydney rather than coming across to Sydney don't know. Uh, those, are, those are the terms that I've got to get used to so uh, look, look I'm really looking forward to that and uh, I, th- I think uh, that, that's probably the hardest thing with Sydney and uh, Victoria is having two teams in their state and all the other teams having one team but uh, that's what you get to being the biggest cities uh, you, you want to spread the game you want to expose the game and uh, we've got enough talent around the uh, around Australia to have eight teams in the competition, and I, I think it's it's great to have those uh, derbies over in Sydney and Melbourne. I think it's created a, a lot more hype in the game rather than just having state on state. And as we've seen with the spectators, uh, they they're really getting on board with it, and uh, the the cities are slowly separating between north and south or east and west, whichever way you want to go with it. Uh, I think it's east and yeah. west over in. Um, 
in Melbourne. Uh, not sure, quite sure what it what it is in Sydney, but I I, I just think it's uh, it's great to um, when when you've got those two capital cities that uh, have got a, a huge population. Uh, it, it's good to sort of have two teams in there to uh, to to get a bit more excitement in the in the uh, city in the game cricket as well. Yeah, it's going to be a great tournament. Best of luck with the Renegades for the upcoming BBL. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're actually my first Australian men's test cricketer to come on the show, so I really appreciate it. Oh, that's all right, mate. I'm, I always like being a guinea pig, so I hope it went all right for you. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks again, Hoggy. Best of luck this summer. We'll be following, as I said, I'll be doing a podcast on the Big Batch, so I'm going to be watching all the games, and I uh, can't wait to see you out there. Yeah, I, I, sorry. I was just going to say it was a great book, The Wrong, and I, I thoroughly recommend all the listeners should pick a copy up. You know, just you just play, played with so many different characters and just a fascinating book. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that. Um, yeah, no, it was really enjoyable, and hopefully the people that do read it, hopefully they get a bit of entertainment out of it and uh, enjoyment as well. So, yeah, no, thank you very much for supporting the book. Thanks, Hoggy. Take care. Thanks, Good luck. Mate. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Cut up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast, and here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners, and joining me for this edition of the podcast, I have a very special guest. He played 27 test matches for Australia, 117 one-day internationals. He's a dual World Cup winner. He's the current coach of the Australian men's cricket team, and he's also released a book called Coach, co-written with Brian Murgatroyd. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with none other than Darren Lehman. All right, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on the Australian Cricket Podcast. How are you? Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've just been reading your really enjoyable book by you and Brian Murgatroyd called Coach. And I think podcasts and book writing are a great forum for reflection. So I guess in this short chat, I thought we could reflect on your Tossie coach. No problems. It'd be a, it'd be a pleasure. Yeah, I wanted to start off. Um, when you took the job as Australian coach, you said you wanted to make a difference as coach. How do you think you've made a difference since you've been the coach of the Aussie side? Oh, I think by bringing a group together. Uh, and obviously, we're a new group now, re- reinventing ourselves as a, as a group with a younger younger bunch of players coming through. We had some really good experienced players and, and they were superstars and we just had to, to play, play a certain way and have everyone going in the one direction. I think that's probably one area. Uh, bring some fun back into the game, which is important for all of us, uh, coaches as well as players and, and fans. We've got to make sure the fans are enjoying what we're doing. So hopefully I've done that. Uh, obviously it's been a little bit disappointing of late, but that's a challenge as a coach uh, to get the best out of your players and get back performing well again. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in Adelaide for the victory, so that was a great victory by the the younger players. But in your book, you sort of go through all the different coaches you had, and what are the, some of the bits from those coaches that you've taken and put into the work you do at the moment? Well, I think it's like a, a cricketer. You, you take bits and pieces from everything as a player. The same as a coach, all the different styles of coaching you have. Yeah, so different from Jeff Marsh's work ethic, John Buchanan's IT background, uh, Greg Chappell's technical background, Barry Rich is the same. So um, I think you grab something from everyone. That, that's the challenge uh, of a coach. You, you can't just be uh, one one style of coach these days with the young guys. You've got to be a bit of everything, to be fair. Yeah, are there any other coaches you bounce ideas off um, at the moment? Yeah, well, you speak to the AFL coaches. There's a few of those I speak to and, 
and obviously rugby coaches. So you, you try and Michael Checker, uh, Mal Meninga, um, you know, Don Pike, uh, you know, all those sort of, uh, Ken Hinckley, anyone that, uh, you know, I, I get a chance to speak to, you always bounce your ideas to become better. And I guess those guys knew have in common that you're right in the media spotlight uh, with regular media, media and social media. How do you find your relationship with the media? I get on the media really well. I think I've always been honest with them, and that, that makes my job a lot easier to, to do. Uh, you know, they have a job to do. Um, and, and when you're not playing well, you, you're going to get criticism, and that's that's always the, the way. That's the way of life. So for, for me, it's a case of being open up front with the media and, and do all the media requests you have, and you're there to promote the game, and you're only a custodian of the game. So that's always the challenge. Yeah, I know from the podcast that when we if we get critical or upset about the results it's just through passion and a great love for the game and I think that comes out a lot on social media and the papers how much Australia really does care about the Australian cricket team well they do they love it and we love it we love it like everyone else does so for us it's always a challenge Uh, you've got to accept the criticism and learn from it and get better Um, so you're right everyone's just passionate about it and they want to see their side do really well and there's nothing wrong with that yeah and how do you deal with being in the goldfish bowl all the time you know the constant travelling and being away from your family and uh, constant demands on your time? Yeah, that's the hardest thing. I mean, we're always sort of 280 days a year, I suppose. So you're only home for a couple of months. So it's hard on the family. They get to travel a little bit, but you're always in and out of hotels. You forget what hotel room you're in. You go to the wrong floor a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, So it's always a challenge travelling in the world, but it's great fun as well. I mean, I have the best job in the world, so I can't complain too much. And, you know, one one day soon I'll I'll be home and and relaxing and spending some time with the family, watching the Australian crew team with a beer in hand. Yeah, and I guess you've seen a massive change from your playing days to now being coach, how much the spotlight really is on the team the whole time. It's always been the case, especially in the last, uh, I suppose, 15, 20 years with the, the media and, uh, you know, social media, etc. So, you know, when I first started, beers on ice and now you put the players on ice. So the game's changed <laughs> as well. So it's always a challenge. Um, the game always evolves and so does, so does work the world. Yeah. Now, you've, you've written in the book about how, you know, that old line that Ian Chappell brings up about is a good coach is the one that takes you to the ground in the mornings. And you talk about in the book how, that the modern captain is under so much more pressure that as a coach, you have to take some of those responsibilities from Steve Smith in this case. What sort of responsibilities do you sort of take from him to lighten the load on a young player with a lot of pressure on him? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Those days are gone. You, you need a coach now, definitely. Players have so many demands. The captain can't do it all. He's got enough to worry about on the ground and his own performance. So, hey, you know, we just get the players prepared, you know, all the analysis for the opposition, what we need to do, how we want to try and do it. And then the captain just goes and does it. Um, and he runs the ship on the ground. So that, that's really important that he can have his own time to prepare because, you know, he's a world-class batsman, best batsman in the world. So we've got to make sure he's batting well, first and foremost. And then he's, he's a fantastic young leader. So we just try and alleviate some pressure so he can just concentrate on the cricket. Yeah, I absolutely love Steve Smith. I just think he's he's got all the makings to end up one of the greats of the game. Do you leave all the on-field stuff to him or do you sort of chat about it? What's what's the role with that? Oh, no, we leave it all to him and we just chat about it. When we have a break, we might have a quick chat. But, you know, he has ideas and they're, they're always good. He, he thinks of things I wouldn't even think of. So that's how, you know, forward thinking he is. So from our point of view, we, we leave it. Leave it to him, definitely. Now, one thing that comes out about Steve Smith is how competitive he is in everything he does. That must be great to work with. Yeah, it's always handy. I mean, if we're playing a little handball game, he needs to win every game. <laughs> so he, he doesn't stop. Uh, so yeah, he's really competitive, and that rubs off on the players as well. 
Now, just back to some of the coaching, you wrote in your book that one of the key aims is to get the players to match their aspiration with their focus, which I thought was really interesting because everyone talks, I'd love to play for Australia, but actually having the focus to do that. How do you do that with the the top level players? Well, they're pretty focused full stop now anyway. They're playing for their country. So we just speak about a history, a tradition, uh, and get them really respecting the past and then creating their own uh, culture, their own um, history when they're playing for Australia. In the book, you also talk about your career and how you felt like you could have uh, maybe got more out of your playing time. Do you sort of share that with the players and use your experience to, to guide them? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I tell them, you know, I made mistakes. There's no doubt about that as a as a player. So um, you, you share those. And, and having been through all those experiences, it's always handy that you can actually talk to a player about a different experiences encountered in the game or, or off the ground. Now, uh, I mean, I've, there's some great stories in your book. One of my favourite stories is from the 1999 World Cup where you write about the failed booze ban that started at the beginning of the World Cup and then was summarily dispatched when the results didn't go your way. What was that like? Oh, it's no good when you can't have a beer. I'll give you the strong tip. Um, but <laughs> this day and age, I mean, it's different in those days. I mean, the guys don't hardly drink these days. Uh, you know, they're totally professional in what they were doing. Not saying we weren't professional, but... You know, we always like a beer and enjoy ourselves. Um, so it's a fine balance. It's, it's like um, curfews. I don't think they work. We're all adults and we have our lives to live. If you make mistakes, then you, you, you either don't get selected or you have issues that way. So, you know, I think they're adults to, to run their own life. Yeah, I think um, what was interesting about that story is that, you know, if you have too many rules and players can't relax, that it just affects the playing group. So it's so I guess you've got to find the balance between making rules and letting players run their own life. That's right. You've got to find that um, you know, happy balance. And that, that can be tough at times because where you're touring affects what you do sometimes. So, yeah, it's a challenge, but it's a good challenge. So everyone's good and buys into it and away we go. Now, I just before you go, I wanted to ask you about the role of the team psychologist. I found that really interesting that you wrote about the way the team psychologist has come into the team and how – he works with them and how you were talking to your psychologist about you you really love your players. How is that relationship having a psychologist in the group? Oh, I think it's really important, mate, because obviously you know, players got to have a confidant they can speak to that, that we don't know about, and that's okay. Um, you know, there's issues that go on in people's lives that, that we wouldn't know about as a coaching team, and we have that guy, you know, he's a fantastic operator, and he's very confidential, and he talks to the players and helps them through a lot of, different issues whether it's on field or off field so it's always good to uh, have that sounding board I use him a lot because obviously I've got a lot of issues trying to help players and working out what the best ways to go so sometimes that little guidance is always good for you Um, and I think it's important for the players to have that someone they can you know fall back to. You touch on in the book the dual roles of being the coach and a selector and I guess this is where the psychologist might come in that it can be someone who's you know totally neutral to, to talk to about emotional things that they might not feel comfortable talking to you or Steve Smith about. That's right. Um, so they're, they're, we're not qualified to talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about our life experiences, but we have someone that's qualified to actually help and deliver that to the player, which is which is pretty important. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, I just want to ask you, what is it like seeing your son, Jake Lehman, running around for South Australia and, and treading the same paths that you tread not so long ago? Uh, it's exciting. It's nerve-wracking as a dad, first and foremost, and uh, you know, I always hope he does well. 
Uh, but it's exciting for him. He's done it all on his own. His dad's been away his whole career, so he, he's going about it the right way. He does a good good job and and works hard, and that's all he can do. So it's great. You know, really nerve wracking when I get to uh, uh, get to watch him. But yeah, it's great fun. And and do you find that you're do you like coach him a little bit? Do you give him tips, or do you just step back and just let him sort of seek coaching out somewhere else? Uh, as a dad, I, I give him a little bit of advice here and there, but most of the time it's about him. Uh, you know, doing the things he does well. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a catch-22. Don't get too involved, but give him the advice when he asks for it and, and offer some little hints along the way. Yeah, it must be exciting to think that he might be playing in, in the Australian team in the next couple of years while you're coaching. Yeah, you never know that. Uh, yeah, if he, if he got there, I'd probably, I'd probably have to do something else. <laughs> I know you've said that if he comes up in the selection table, you'll leave the room. I guess you'll have to deal with that when it comes. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens. Yeah, yeah, you have to deal with it when it comes, mate. That's all I can do. Well, Darren, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with the rest of the seasons. Are you looking forward to the one-day series against the Kiwis coming up? Yeah, we are, mate. So looking forward to that. Starts this week. Looking forward to a good performance from the one-day guys. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Darren. I, I recommend your book, Coach, to all the listeners. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast, and here are your hosts. Hi there, listeners, and welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. It's Menas here with the final instalment of Book Week. We've had Hoggy, we've had Boof, now we have 66 Test veteran Brad Haddon. Now, Brad has released a new book called My Family's Keeper, which is as much a story about his daughter's battle with cancer as it is a story about his own cricket career. It is a powerful read, and I thoroughly recommend it to all the listeners. And I started off by asking Brad Haddon why he wrote this book. Early doors in in Mia's treatment plan, she she can't remember a lot uh, what happened, um, which which is a good thing, uh, because there's some very dark days there for her, but... We think the book will be a great tool um, for me to, to be able to look over in, in years to come and, and I'll have a look at her journey, to, to be honest, and explain um, some of the side effects of the treatment that, that it's had. And so, yeah, that was one of the big motivations on um, writing the book. Now, I'm just wondering, in the book, it shows your ability to be able to switch off from what's going on in your personal life and be able to be able to perform on the field. How were you able to sort of do that? Because, I mean, it, you, your family was going through turmoil and you were still able to put in some great performances for your country. How, how did you manage manage that? That, that was really hard um, at, at the start, and I didn't handle that, that really well. The, the first game um, I came back to New South Wales, I couldn't get oh, the thoughts of what was going on at home with me out of my head, and, and I really struggled to, to, to pull the two, two apart. But after I sat down with... Um, Karina um, and had, had a good chat about moving forward and, and how we, we we're going to approach it. It's, we, we've we found a way, um, and, and we, with my family support, I, I was able to. When I was there, being a cricketer, I was able to focus on on what I had to do there. And and when I was home, it was it was time to be a family man again. So yeah, it was my, my family played a massive um, role in in helping me uh, get that balance right, so I, I could perform the way I needed to. And when you came back to the Aussie side after going away when Mia was initially diagnosed, did you find that that the whole personal life thing put cricket in a different perspective? Oh, in all honesty, you, you spend your, your your life uh, challenging yourself to to be the best cricketer you can, and and we're 
we're in a really unique position where we get to, to play the game um, that, that every Australian loves for, for a living. But I think when I came back, that the hardest thing about it all was was leaving the, the family home. So, yeah, it, it did put a... I don't think I looked at the, the game any differently. I think I just looked at all those little things that tend to consume your thoughts that you're worried too much about. Um, I just didn't have time or, or the energy to worry about them. I mean, your book's an amazing read. I, I found, you know, being a father myself, that it's, it's really powerful story and you know it's very moving and um just congratulations on on that that part of the book as i said i think you know it's it's a good book for not just cricket fans to read but but everybody so uh, i think that it's a it's a valuable book that you've written and i hope that people that are outside the cricket community pick it up and have a read yeah i hope so i, I think it's a, a book for for not only just cricket lovers but um just everyone to, to be perfectly honest it's got a a different look um, at the at my, at my cricket career. Um, I was blessed to to do what I did for for so long, and um, yeah, and and if our book can touch another family that's going through a similar um, situation or, or or coming on hard times, well, if we can touch one family there, well, I think the book book's been worth it. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think it will. It's a very powerful book. Now, Brad, we have lots of listeners from overseas, uh, England, South Africa, some of your favourite competitive nations. And, you know, one of the impressions that I got from our listeners that you were quite a, I wouldn't say divisive figure, but, you know, you used to rile up opposition players and opposition fans. And uh, I think you you sort of, I've heard you say before, that wasn't so much you were sledging, but you just like to be involved in the game. Um, what do you think about that sort of aspect of your game? Oh, oh, I think that the one thing in job is the wicketkeeper. Okay, my job was to, to make sure um, in a field we're playing an up-tempo game, we're, we're making the, an, an uncomfortable environment for the opposition, not not with, with our verbal, but um, our, our presence we, we had in the field and our movement. So I, I know as a, as a wicketkeeper, and, and Ian Healy spoke to me about this very early in, in, in my, my career, He's, it was our job to make sure the, the fielders were we're making that uncomfortable environment and, and making sure our energy's where it needs to be. And if not, I used to take that personally as a wicketkeeper because I, I used to think that was my job. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, one of my favourite memories memories of your playing career is at the SCG two years ago in a test match versus India. You came out to bat and Virat Kohli stood there and it looked like he was giving you a gobful. I mean... Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was just asking you what you were having for dinner. And you proceeded to hit the next ball straight over the bowler's head for six. That must have been a good feeling. Yeah, it was. I, I know the SCG quite well. And, and I know the way the wicket played. And there was a lot of talk going into the test match that they were going to try to bounce me and things. And I came in at a, at a time where I could play with a bit of freedom. And um, we're looking to... Um, Declare, and I thought, oh well, if it's if it's up, I'm I'm going to throw caution to the wind here, and and I got a good piece of it, and, and it went to six. So um, yeah, it was a it was a good little theatre. Um, yeah, it was great theatre. It was fantastic. And some of the other players you've um, come to blows with on the field, Ben Stokes. Uh, it was an interesting story in the book of when he took his first Test wicket in inverted commas, and uh, unfortunately overstepped the line. Uh, he had a few words to him. He's a very um, a, a very affronting cricketer, isn't he? Oh, I think he, yeah, he he was a shining light for England in in the Ashes series that we we won five 
five nil. And I think he's just gone on to greater heights since. So yeah, no, that was all um, a bit of fun. He was a he was a fierce com- competitor. There was no malice in what was going on out there in the field. And yeah, he um, we all enjoyed a a cold beer at the end of the series and and had a good joke about it. So um, oh, that that is the the moment that a bit of fun out there between men. Yeah, look, I think it's great for the game when you see that sort of passion. I mean, we saw recently with Faf, sort of Faf Duplessis, winding up the Aussie crowds. He's he's good at winding up people. I remember he called what you and Warner barking dogs a couple of years ago. So he, he's someone that uh, winds people up, and I, it's just good for the game. And I think it's great theatre, as you said. Oh, I think that we're out there to entertain. We we want people coming into to. to um through the gates watching the game and, and you want the characters in the game and and Faf obviously did a really good job this summer bringing that South African team together with with no AB or, or Dale Stain so um, yeah he he earned the right to, to play the way um, he in South Africa wanted to. Yeah, um, yeah I know you've been watching a lot of the test matches what do you think about the way the Australian side's going at the moment do you think there's the cricket is in crisis in this country or is it sort of been blown out of proportion? Oh well we just won the the last test match, and, and I, I thought that was a, a really refreshing team. Um, I think there was a line in the sand after the Hobart, and I, I really liked the way the Australian selectors and, and the Australian team um, responded. I thought the new guys that, that came in gave a lot of energy to the to the group, and and, and I think we're in, we're in good hands. Steve Smith now got a team that he can mould the, the way he wants to play for the for the however long he wants. Um, so it, I think it's a Exciting time for, for Australian cricket, and I'm looking forward to the Test Series against Pakistan. In your book, you write about how you were sort of instrumental in Steve Smith ascending to the captaincy when Michael Clark was injured. What is it that you saw in Steve Smith as a captain? Oh, I, I think Stephen showed leadership um, qualities right the way when he started at New South Wales. He came in very, very young, and he, he was raw, but he always had a really good cricket brain. Um, he, he was happy to ask, Ask questions. He, he thought he always thought about moving the game forward and, and winning the game. So oh, I think he's going to be a really good captain for Australia. Um, he's just starting in his, in his time as captain for Australia, and, and I reckon it's a really exciting time to um, for him and, and the team. Yeah, I'm a massive Steve Smith fan. I'm hoping he plays on for another ten years and just keeps racking up the records because it's it's great to have a, a young captain like that uh, in the job. Now, I want to go back to some parts of the book, especially, you know, I've been, I spoke to Darren Lehman and I read his account of your uh, retirement and dropping, I guess, and I've read your account of it, and they seem to match up pretty closely. Have you read what Darren's written about when you were left out of the side? Uh, no, I, I haven't read it, but... Um, well, he, he, I, said, Darren, I were... he said that he probably made a mistake in you and Watto playing on... Um, through the ashes, and maybe that was part of the problem. How do you sort of reflect on that? Oh, I think through the, the whole process, what you, everyone, and I said in the book, I, I got dropped on form first and foremost. And, and Darren was really good. The, the situation, he was he was honest um, with me, and yeah, there was yeah the reason I wasn't uh, in the side is, is because my form wasn't where it needed to be. Darren comes across as an honest person in his in his book and talking to him. And I think obviously, that's important for relationships moving forward. That you feel like you've got an open, honest relationship. Yeah. Yep. What about uh, the future? Now you've got one left season left in the BBL. Then you've got the the Pakistan Super League next year, and then and then is that it for your playing days? Um, 
I'm looking forward to the to the Sixers and and I had a really enjoyable time in uh, Dubai with Islamabad um, in the Pakistan league. So yeah, I'm just going to enjoy the the next couple of months playing. Um, yeah, there's there's no pressure yet to do anything else but enjoy it. So yeah, I'm just um, there's no expectations or or anything like that. I'm just going to go and enjoy playing some uh, 2020 cricket. But then no more playing after that. Oh, I haven't really thought that far ahead. To, yeah, well, I haven't thought that far ahead to to be honest. So, as I said, I, I just want to enjoy that time uh, with the Sixers um, and enjoy the the time with uh, Islamabad, and, and I'll, I'll sit down after that and, and decide where I want to go. So, Brad, you're going to be finishing up playing fairly soon. What do you think when you stop playing? You're going to move into media or coaching. What would you like to do post playing? Oh, I, I still enjoy the game. Um, oh, I enjoy being involved in the game. I did a bit of coaching with um, Australia Ray, which I really enjoyed. Um, I'm assistant coach over in Islamabad this this time around as well, and 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 going to do a tour with with Darren to New Zealand, helping out there. So yeah, coaching is something that um, the the more I uh, get involved with it, the the more I seem to enjoy. But it's important that you you're doing it for the right reasons, and and you're not just doing it. Um, yeah, you, you want to do it to, to make a difference. So, um, yeah, if the, if the right job comes up, you'll, you'll obviously put your hand up and be involved if, if you think you can make a difference to, to Australian cricket. Yeah, I'm looking forward to you moving into the commentary box for Triple M. Uh, we have a segment on the show called The Commentary Critique. Are there any commentators that you like to listen to or that you'll mould your own commentary on? I, I, I don't know about mould. I think you'll, you'll bring your, your own personal take on Whatever you do, the, the one commentator I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to working with and, and, and hearing back on the airways is um, Kerry O'Keefe, um, the great skull. So I'm, I'm really excited about um, having the opportunity to, to work with him. And I know he's got a, an unbelievable cricket brain, um, but he's also got a unique way to, to look at things. So I think that's going to be really exciting for everyone to, to hear him back on the airways and, and to be able to sit next to him and... Uh, talk to him about the game, I think it's going to be great fun. Yeah, I think Kerry O'Keefe manages to marry serious analysis with humour, which is a hard thing to do. He's got a unique talent. Oh, he has got a unique talent, and I think everyone's just looking forward to him um, being back on the airways. So, uh, yeah, I'm like everyone else around Australia. I can't wait. <laughs> now, just when I've read comments about your book that you say that you hope your book is able to touch people in a way a traditional cricket book won't, and I think you've achieved that. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about it. As I said, My Family's Keeper is an incredible read and I thoroughly recommend it to all the listeners. And Brad, thanks for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with the rest of the season with the Sixers. No worries. Thanks for having me. Have thank a good you. Day. Thanks, Brad. Bye. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Podcast Network.